Hello, welcome to the Campus Bible Study Podcast. Join us each week as we hear from God's Word, as we seek to prayerfully proclaim the crucified Christ as Lord of all. Corinthians 13 verse 1. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith hope and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Well, good afternoon, friends. My name is Tim. If we haven't met, I'm one of the pastors here uh, on campus. And it's so great to have Josh and Jordan leading us today. Uh, we enjoy the partnership amongst the International Student Ministry, the International Student Church of Focus, as well as Uni Church, uh, as we gather together each week to read and to learn from God's Word. So thanks so much for leading us today, guys. Uh, let's pray and ask for God to help us to understand His Word. Heavenly Father, we do give you great thanks for uh, your ongoing patience with the world that you have made. Uh, Father, thank you for the freedom that we have to gather in your name and to hear you speak. And Father, we pray that today that we would come to understand what you mean by this rich and beautiful chapter, that we may live in a way that pleases you. Father, we ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, the story of love in our world is one of both obsession and confusion. Uh, Love songs always top the music charts, and love seems to grip our lives with this kind of unmatched power. We want love, we pursue love, but sometimes it also hurts us and evades us. And so we can be tempted to play love down, to pass it off cheaply. Instead of rightly directing our love towards others, we turn it in on ourselves, perhaps to protect ourselves. And to make it worse, we're told that if we want to try and love others, well, we don't get to choose how we do that. They need to set the agenda. They need to tell us how they feel loved. They choose what is loving for them. And then it's up to us to provide that love. Love in our world is highly desirable, but also deeply perplexing. Now, how has it come to this? Well, I wonder as we esteem and pursue love, we've, well, changed love. We were made to love. Love, it's good to cherish and delight in it, but we've cut love free from, in a sense, its foundational mooring. 
Love now is a bit like a ship floating in a sea. It's hard to grasp. It's hard to work out where it is. It keeps on moving. Different people say and see different things about love. If you like, we've taken love out of its right context. We've turned love in on itself. And as we've done it, things have all become a bit muddled. And unfortunately, we can do similar things when it comes to 1 Corinthians 13, the chapter we just read. Uh, We continue our series through this letter that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. And as we come to this brief and brilliant chapter, it may be a familiar one. Uh, It's perhaps the most famous chapter in the whole letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians. But unfortunately, because these verses look so good on the wallpaper of your phone or on the wall at home, We love to take them out of context. We love to delight in them, but we kind of forget and miss the point, perhaps, of their greatest glory and purpose in the the letter that Paul wrote himself. And so, it's not a particularly profound observation, but today I want to tell you that chapter 13 fits between chapters 12 and 14. And that's significant because Paul in these three chapters is making an argument. And in a sense, chapter 13 is this kind of key integral part to his argument for how God's people should gather when they get together for church. The things that he says in this chapter, it's not everything there is to say about love, but they're things that are really significant and important to understand how we should love each other as God's people when we gather together. That's the particular context, that's his particular argument. And so to perhaps illustrate some of the the strangeness or the contextual nature of this chapter, have you ever noticed or considered it strange in this this beautiful expose of love, God is strangely absent. He fails to make an appearance. He doesn't turn up anywhere in these 13 short verses, let alone the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you've read 1 John 4 recently, you might be struck by a slightly different picture of love. We read in 1 John 4 verse 7, Beloved, Let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation, the one who died to take God's wrath against our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. See, there's another beautiful set of verses about love. But God is all through those verses. Yet He's missing in 1 Corinthians 13. As you read 1 John 4, uh, to understand love is to understand God, and you can't understand God and not love. If you want to understand love, look no further than God and, well, that perfect and beautiful and climactic revelation of love as God took on human flesh in the person of Jesus, as Jesus then went to the cross to die for the sins of the world. How is all that missing from 1 Corinthians 13? In place of such a clear and rich focus on God and the work of Jesus Christ, Paul is at the center of 1 Corinthians 13. There's so much talk about I, it's his experience. It's a little surprising and perhaps even concerning 
particularly if we want to lift this chapter out of context, particularly if we want to say that this is what we need to know and understand about love. But I wonder if perhaps that's also part of the broad appeal of this chapter. Uh, When I was growing up, I went to a school that professed to be Christian, and we had 1 Corinthians 13 as our school lesson. And I wonder if it kind of works in that context, where whether or not you call yourself a Christian, whether or not you acknowledge God as the Lord of all, or Jesus as the reigning King of creation, you can kind of assent to these sentiments. Be patient, be kind, whether or not you acknowledge God. It's a strange chapter when you consider it in that kind of context. So, what about when we put the chapter back into its letter, back into the argument that Paul is making? How do we make sense of this? It is a rich and a beautiful chapter, but one perhaps that we can get a little out of context, a little confused about. When we're back in our Bibles, uh, you probably, well, maybe remember back a couple of weeks ago, 1 Corinthians 12, Carl took us through this chapter seeing that God has gathered people who are different from one another, but we're united by the one Spirit, we're united in the one body, and we have different gifts and different roles to play, but we are united in seeking to bring about the common good as the body builds itself up. Then, in the last verse, there's this strange paradox. Having just really stressed and emphasized how every member is valuable and needed, Paul seems to suggest there's different value attributed to different gifts, perhaps even different people. Verse 31 of chapter 12, but earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. You see, this is the introduction to chapter 13. As the opening verses of chapter 13 make clear, we're really building on what's come before in chapter 12. This is thinking about how you express those God-given gifts for the good of the body, how you honor and value others as you do this. The essential foundation for understanding what it is and what is not meant by these higher gifts is chapter 13, is love. Love is not the higher gift, it's something different. It is this way to live, the most excellent and glorious way. And it is something that is required of all and available to all. It's within all of our ability, but that doesn't mean that it's boring or basic or just the beginning. This is, if you like, peak Christian service. This is top shelf stuff. You can't get higher than love when it comes to gathering and serving as God's people. And yet it's for all of us. It's wonderfully democratized. There's a great equality amongst it. Whether your first day as a Christian is today, or whether you've always grown up in church, love is for you. Love is the way to live the Christian life. And love is what we need to grasp as we think about how we serve at church. So, we're at point two in your outlines, the power of love. And let's have a read of the first three verses of chapter 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing." If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Now, if you can remember back to 
chapter 12, or maybe just look back to chapter 12 and verses 8 to 10, most of these activities in the opening verses of chapter 13 were mentioned back in chapter 12 as these, well, things that God gives His people for the common good in verse 7. And it seems like he begins with illustrating this personally. These are things that Paul does or, or has done amongst them, and then he seems to extend it to, well, an extreme beyond what anyone has done. I think this is clearest with prophecy and probably most contentious with tongues. Uh, so, if we start off with prophecy in verse 2, Paul talks about prof having prophetic powers. Chapter 14 seems to make it really clear that he does speak prophetically. But then, to go further in that sentence and to claim to understand all mysteries and all knowledge, well, no one could be so arrogant as to claim that omniscience, if I can say that word, that only belongs to God. As we're going to come to later in verse 12, our present experience is of partial knowledge, not full knowledge. So, Paul starts with what he has, speaking prophetic words, and then extends it out to the wildest possible extreme, knowing absolutely everything. Clearly, he doesn't have that. In a similar way, while all Christians have saving faith, Paul picks up the language that Jesus used to illustrate having all faith so that you can remove mountains. In the literal sense, I think even that kind of faith is beyond the experience of Paul. Or in verse 3, while we all seek to show generosity, it's hard to be more extreme than giving away absolutely everything you have, even giving up your own life. I guess, by definition, it's hard to find someone who can boast of having done that. So, that brings us back to verse 1. Paul clearly spoke in different tongues. And I think this is most naturally understood as different human languages. And so, the first half is a description of what Paul has experienced, to speak in the tongues of men. But then I take it, as he did in the other ones, he extends this to an extreme that no one actually experiences. That is, to speak in the tongues of angels. And that's significant to say that or to suggest that, because many look to this verse as a justification for tongue-speaking being speaking unintelligible language, which they explain as the tongues of angels. But I think I have some hesitations with landing in that place. I think in Paul's consistent argument, he's moving from something that is known and practiced and understood to an extreme that is not practiced, perhaps never experienced. Further in the Bible, as far as I can see, we don't have any evidence that angels do speak random languages that we do not understand. They may well, I just don't really see it. And if we have none of this evidence, the clear evidence that we do seem to have about speaking in tongues comes in Acts chapter 2, where they clearly spoke different human languages. So, we've got some evidence for that. We don't have the evidence for the angelic language speaking, and Paul's argument seems to go against it. And there's also maybe a hint down in verse 8, when Paul talks about the fact that tongues will cease. Now, rather than adopting the angelic language for all eternity, this kind of need to speak in different human languages will come to an end. Now, it's speculation. Again, we don't have clarity around this, but I wonder if this is saying that the reversal of God's judgment that we see back in Genesis 11 and in Babel will come about in the new creation. 
people will be able to communicate together and understand one another with one language. There won't be the need for many human languages or the gift of tongues. I think the best evidence in the argument is that the spiritual gift of tongues involves, well, declaring the mighty works of God in different human languages. The tongues of angels seems to be another hypothetical extreme for the sake of the argument. But even if you take all of these things to their absolute extreme, the craziest and the wildest possible way that you can imagine serving God as you gather as His people, these expressions of spiritual gifts require love. That's Paul's key point. And if we take love out of the equation, things go wrong. How? Well, here's a chance to say hi to those around you. What happens if you try and express these gifts, even in their wildest possible sense, without love? Say hi. Enjoy the chat for 30 seconds. All right, what happens if you take love out of the great serving of others? Well, it's interesting. I think I've often read this passage, and the kind of thing that I expect is that if you take love out of this kind of one another service, well, that activity ceases to have value. It ceases to be effective. And in a sense, that's kind of true when it comes to tongues. If words are spoken in a different language without love, and I take that love is going to be expressed in interpretation when we come to chapter 14 next week, well, they are just indistinct sounds that have no benefit for the building up and the teaching of the listeners. But more shockingly, to seek to exercise a gift, even the greatest conceivable gift, Without love, it detracts more from me than from the ministry I do. So with tongues, it's not my mere words that become empty and clamorous. If you have a look, it's me. I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Or if I prophesy and communicate great truth, that truth, I take it, can still be true and beneficial to those who hear it. But if I speak it without love, notice at the end of the verse, it isn't my words that are nothing, I am nothing. Or again, if I give everything away through great acts of charity and service, without love I don't achieve, uh, so without love I may still achieve some good, but it's of no gain to me. Why is this? Well, having just mentioned these higher gifts at the end of chapter 12, there's perhaps a temptation to think that having or expressing these gifts might somehow make you more valuable or significant or impressive amongst God's people. While we may not be so crass as to articulate it, ministry can easily become about me. My value is found in seeing others or having others impressed by what I can offer, by what I can do by my gift and my wonderful exercise of it. And so Paul is swift and perhaps even ruthless to take the wind out of any such thinking before he goes further. Your value is not found in what you do, not even amongst God's people, not even with the craziest gift of your wildest imagination. In fact, it's like Paul says, to try and use ministry service for self-promotion is to try and sit on a stool with broken legs. It doesn't work. It can't support you. It falls down because ministry, like love, is inherently about God and others. To try and turn it in on yourself, to make yourself look great, 
Well, it kicks the legs out from underneath the ministry stool. It fails. It doesn't work. Instead, love is this essential power or orientation or nature of ministry, of using the gifts God has given you for others, for the common good, not for your own pride or promotion. Now, take it that makes perfect sense. God's character is self-giving love. We've seen that. And His people who have experienced that love should reflect that love. Of course, it isn't about us. We serve for the sake of others. But do you find it pretty easy to get caught up in finding your value or your significance in the way that you serve or in the way that people think about you? It's much more glamorous to be up the front than clicking slides at the back. Those who are on the stage are esteemed. That's why we put them on a stage. And if we get to be up there, we can feel impressive. The great temptation of Satan is that we think we are something because of how we serve. But Paul is very clear. If we serve out of love for ourselves, well, it takes away the very substance of our service. We need to be those who don't perform for a crowd, who do not seek the spotlight, who do not look for the laughs or the love or the admiration of others. We seek to humbly serve God and do what we can for the sake of others. And as we get it wrong, we are to repent and ask Him to keep on changing our hearts to do so. We need to keep on remembering what we offer to the church is not what makes you valuable. As we saw clearly last week, what makes you valuable is being made in God's image and adopted into God's family through the precious blood of Jesus. And within that family, chapter 12 tells us God has equipped all of us in different ways to serve the body. And the common and the essential power of this service is love, that commitment to God and to others, something that we are all capable of, something that we're all called to live out. What does it look like? And we're at point three, what is love? Uh, you can think of love a bit like an intricately cut diamond. As you look closely at it, you see many different facets and angles. There's a great richness and beauty to it. And what we see in verses four to seven is by no means trying to unpack all of the different dimensions of love. It really focuses on or highlights or draws out some of the key characteristics that are really applicable for their context, for thinking about how we live and serve as God's people in church. As I read through these verses for us in verses 4 to 7, notice that love is not primarily a feeling, but a behavior. And it's not something natural, but a choice. And it's not focused on us, but others. Have a look from verse, or just going to do 4 to 6. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Now, if we think about this character of love applied in the context of serving one another in church, how do you think that this love is going to shape that service? Well, here's another chance to chat together. Question's on the screen. What happens if you try and express these? No, that's the wrong question. Maybe I didn't give it to you. Alas, well, I'll tell it to you. You've got a good memory. Uh, you can write down what happens uh, or what do you expect it's going to look like to serve with this character of love? What do you expect it's going to look like to serve with this character of love? 
30 seconds. If you come back tomorrow, you can have this question on the screen as well. All right, friends, let's come back together. What does it look like to serve with this kind of love? Well, this love is relational. It's considerate of others. It's keen to serve, but not to self-promote. I'm not sure if you noticed at the start, there's two positive commands that express both the passive and active expression of love. Patience is that passive expression. It won't demand an opportunity to speak. It won't push the front or hurry others out of the way. It will honor and wait its turn, if its turn should come. And kindness is that active sense. It will seek to serve for the good of others, as there is need and as there is opportunity. But following these two positive instructions, there is eight things that love avoids. Instead of seeing serving church as a, a competition, a place where value is earned and honor is given, love delights and rejoices in the gifts that God has given to others. And there's no place for jealousy. There's no place for boasting. Because everything that you have and that others have has come from God and is for the common good, expressed through love. Love doesn't look inward. It's not about arrogance or rudeness, demanding your own way. Rather, love values others as essential members of the body. To be heard, to be honored, never overlooked or marginalized. There is again an expression of patience and kindness. It's going to mean probably going more slowly. It's going to mean acting with humility to receive the input and, well, appreciate the contribution of others. It may not be your you know, personal desire or style or the way that you like to work, but we seek to honor God and serve Him by honoring those He has gathered with the role that they have been equipped to play. And so love won't be frustrated as others learn and grow, or maybe as they don't do things as well as you could or as well as you'd like. Love doesn't remember failures and hold them against people. It's not to say love is blind or uncritical, but it doesn't rejoice in when others stumble or fall. It doesn't look at others, as you may be thinking today, go, oh, I could preach that better. I could have done a better job than that person did. No, it rejoices in the truth. Because in this way, love is grounded. Do you see, as love rejoices in the truth, it is objective rather than subjective. It is determined by the truth, not a matter of personal preference. And that means that love has, well, stability. And we can have confidence to know what love is. Not just what we like, but what is objectively good for all people. And this means when the truth is complained, is proclaimed, even through human weakness and failing, love is delighted. But when the truth is confused or corrupted, love will speak up, not to boast or be rude or to insist on your own way, but to build up and encourage as an act of kindness, not arrogance. Both are necessary expressions of love because love does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but it rejoices with the truth. But the implication of this is also seen in our society. When the truth is relativized, and cut off from any absolute foundation, then love is also relativized. As we each decide for ourselves what is true, we also decide for ourselves what is loving. We become the kings of our own worlds, and love is all about us. 
And while society may celebrate it, you may know the Bible calls this attitude sin. It's when we rebel against God, not giving Him the honor He deserves, but claiming whatever glory we can for ourselves. In stark contrast to this worldly, self-centered love, the Bible says love is grounded in the truth, and it's expressed most perfectly, as we saw, in that selfless giving of God Himself. We see it when Jesus took on human flesh in all humility, and as He went to His death on the cross out of love for those who'd rejected Him. This is the character of love. And this is, in a sense, the absolute truth that biblical love is grounded in. And so, this is the truth that overflows in how we gather as God's people, but also extends to all contexts and all people and all cultures and all times, because God's love endures. Now, in the Corinthian context, it seems that they needed to understand this character of love, because when they gathered, it seemed like everyone had something that they wanted to say, something they wanted to contribute. They may have felt pride in having their voice heard, it may have thought that their arguments were persuasive or they were significant if they could contribute in that kind of a way. And so, Paul is quite clear that church and serving is not a place for self-promotion, but it's a place for love, for patience and kindness, for consideration, a powerful corrective that they and we will do well to hear, particularly if we're ever tempted to look down upon or to undervalue others in our churches. But I wonder if perhaps we've erred in a different way from the Corinthians, still failing to love as the body of Christ. Perhaps we've, well, corrected too much in the way of order. If your name is not on the roster, do you have any role to play this Sunday? Do you turn up thinking that you've got words to speak to build others up? Like the Corinthians, they seem to be bustling for an audience, an opportunity to speak. But most of us seem to turn up not willing to speak. We'll talk about the footy, we'll sit and consume, and we'll head home and move on with our day. I wonder if we need to hear the call that love is kind, love delights in the truth, and so love will seek to serve others when it feels comfortable and when it doesn't. To be eager to speak, to be prayerful as you come to church, to arrive early and to leave late, to look for any opportunity to contribute, to build up and serve others. In a sense, church is not a performance where we sit back and are entertained. It's like being part of an orchestra or a sports team with no bench. We all come with a part to play. We come to get active and to be involved. And so, what's it going to look like for you to turn up to church this Sunday? to come to Bible talks, to, to rock up in Bible study with this kind of attitude, looking for opportunities to serve and thanking those who do serve as you honor them and appreciate their efforts. This is the more excellent way that Paul and God calls us to live. And that then brings us to verse 7, which personally I think is one of the more challenging verses in this chapter, especially in the ESV, because the meaning, I think, is a little obscured. As we read, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, it can sound like love is gullible, believing everything it hears or sees. It's a bit like the great quote from Abraham Lincoln, don't believe everything you see on the internet. Now, hopefully you see the irony in that, if not, someone will explain it to you later. <laughs> it's, is it a good thing that love believes all? Is it a good thing that love hopes all? 
It doesn't mean that we should think the best of people and take them at their word. Now, they may be good things to do, but I don't think that's what Paul has in mind. You see, Paul is just grounded love in the absolute truth, the unchanging truth. And then I think in verse 7, he's reflecting on the central place of that truth when it comes to love. Uh, so I think a, a more helpful translation of verse 7 is a bit close to the NIV. If we say love always endures, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres, I wonder if it helps us to see a bit more clearly what Paul has in mind. You see, it's kind of the exact opposite of being gullible. Love is stable and steadfast. Love is able to endure opposition and hardship. Love is able to stand the test of time and to persevere through everything. Why? Because it is grounded in truth, not a feeling. At the heart of Christian love is trust in the unchanging truth of the Christian gospel and the certain hope that what God has promised is going to come to pass. And since these truths are fixed, love always keeps trusting them. Love always keeps hoping in them. And so love always perseveres and endures. And this is really significant because it grounds this chapter in Christian love. Not abstract, detached love, but in love that's built upon the truth of the gospel. That is the unwavering and sure trust that must shape God's people not just when they gather, but in all of life. In a sense, this little verse summarizes and assumes that rich gospel foundation we saw in 1 John 4 at the start. Paul's not interested in unpacking that here. He's laid the gospel foundation earlier in the letter, but he shows that this must continue to ground and shape the love that God's people have for one another. And so, as God's people, we are to always love. We're at point four. Uh, now, maybe a little surprisingly, having reached this great climax of the enduring necessity of love, love seems to slip out of view at the end of the chapter. Instead, we're told about the partial being superseded when the complete comes, and we've got a couple of illustrations about maturity and mirrors. Uh, the question we need to consider is, what does this have to do with love? I'm going to read from verse 8, and then hopefully the question's on the screen, but we'll find out you're highly competent. Verse 8, love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. And when I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully even as I have been fully known. The question is there. What is the connection between love and the perfect replacing the partial? How do these last few verses fit in? Enjoy. You can have 30 seconds to ponder together. Friends, I know it's not enough time, but I need enough time to finish off as well. Let's come back together. How does this fit in? In a sense, the last plank in Paul's argument for this most excellent way of love is love's enduring character. It's grounded in God and the unfailing truth of His gospel, and it's a commitment for, to the good of others that will never cease, it will never fail, it will never be superseded. Certainly, we will grow in this, but the fundamental orientation of love does not pass. 
in contrast, the particular gifts that God has equipped His people with for building up the church, they have a particular focus on the now in this age. And while there is genuine and real truth and goodness in those words that we speak for building others up, they are still partial and imperfect. Uh, maybe it's a bit like your experience of looking in a foggy mirror. There are some things that you can see, but they're not as clear as they could be. God has clearly revealed all that we need to know for life and godliness. This is not in any way saying that the Scriptures are, are opaque or that we can't understand what we need to. But the picture that we have is not complete. We await the day of Christ's return when we will have that full and exhaustive knowledge. Knowledge that is compared, you might have noticed in verse 12, to the knowledge God presently has for us. If you're a child of God, you are already fully known by Him. Now, that may sound like a terrifying prospect. Many of us spend our lives trying to hide or curate our, a presentable image so that people will like us. But the judge of all the earth, He knows it all already. And as terrifying as that may sound, the profound and wonderful truth is that though He knows all of that, He has chosen to love you. He's chosen to send His Son to die for you. He has welcomed you as you truly are. And so being known by God is a reminder of the incredible assurance we can have with God. We are known, we are loved, we are secure. Paul's second illustration is then of a child growing into man and leaving the old ways behind. As a father of young children, I appreciate this image, uh, but I take it you also know the experience of looking back at your younger self, and whether it's your fashion or your little foibles, you're glad that things have moved on and you have changed as you've grown up. Now, when does this transformation take place? I think fundamentally Paul's looking forward to the, the end of time, when Christ returns, when the dead are raised, and we have this full and complete knowledge of God and ourselves and the world that He has made. But I wonder if the picture of growing helps us to see that there's a taste of this and there's progress that's made even in this life now. We work towards it, but though we never attain it until that day when Christ returns. And so, I can't help thinking of children who struggle with love and patience. They feel a great need to express their thoughts no matter who else is talking or who else is in the way. And they feel that to get their opinion out there is really important. And they're not afraid of jealousy or boasting. We learn to mask those things. Kids are bold and express them. And perhaps that is a little in common with what was happening in the church in Corinth. But maybe we too can have childlike tendencies in our desire to be served rather than to serve. I mean, kids are pretty good at expecting that the world is there to entertain them, to provide for them, to meet their needs, and they're not so good at looking for opportunities to serve and to help and to take initiative in caring for others. I wonder if in both instances, there's a call to growth and maturity as we express our love for the good of others, for building up the body of Christ. And after all, that's the love that we're going to be expressing to one another and to God for all eternity. Uh, finally, verse 3 then comes along with the return to love, but this time it's part of this kind of famous Christian triad. So, faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these in love. Uh, for some, it seems like a strange introduction of faith and hope, but I think with our understanding of verse 7, 
we see that this has been foundational throughout. This is the Christian shape of love and is the essential grounding for our service of others now and for all eternity. But in what sense is love greater than faith and hope? Surely faith is essential for forgiveness and life. Wouldn't you think that that one should win? Well, I don't think Paul's trying to get into the technical aspects of how these different elements play together. I think he's wanting to focus on the relational aspect of the Christian life. Faith is an expression of our love for God as we've received His love for us. As we saw in verse 7, hope is an expression of the love that we have for God and the trust that we have in His promises. Love highlights the wonderful relationship which is central to what it is to be a child of God. And that is the character that is to be expressed as we gather together, using all that He has given us for building up the body of Christ. You see, this is an incredibly rich chapter. Not so much for a, a wallpaper out of context, but to understand the heart and the expression of what it means to be God's people, to gather, to value one another, to serve one another, as God has enabled for His glory. Let us be those who love like this chapter. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this glorious and confronting picture of love. A love that turns us outward, not in on ourselves. A love that seeks to find its foundation in You and the truth of Your Gospel. A love that seeks to serve, not ourselves, but others, as we seek to build one another up with the gifts that You have given us. Father, we are sorry for the ways that we get this wrong, and we pray that by the power of Your Spirit, You may change our hearts to love, that our lives may be pleasing in Your sight. Father, may we have a right humility with the knowledge that You've given us, building a sure foundation on what we have understood, but knowing that when you, Your Son returns, we will see You fully as You fully see us now. Father, may we reflect Your love as we await Your Son. And we ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Thanks for tuning in this week to the Campus Bible Study Podcast. Make sure that you're subscribed on your regular podcasting app. And why don't you check us out on Facebook, YouTube, or visit our website at campusbiblestudy.org.